The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm glad you could tune in today. We're wrapping up National Poetry Month, and I have the perfect guest today. And this just kind of worked out. A lot of times my planning uh, is not as successful, (laughs) but I'm really happy that this was able to work out today. We're going to be diving in to the tales of Rumi. And the poetry of Persian poet and Sufi mystic Rumi, he was born over 800 years ago. His work continues to endure, and his works have sold millions of copies in recent years, And he's been described as the most popular poet in the U.S. And globally, he has legions of fans, and his work is shared all over social media daily. I always see roomy quotes and things popping up on Instagram and on Facebook. And today we're going to explore the work of Rumi and investigate how we can apply his ancient wisdom to our modern times today. And my guest, Kamla Kapoor, has written a beautiful book. It's called Rumi, Tales of the Spirit. And she introduces us to 12 stories from Rumi that offer wisdom to all aspects of modern life, including relationships, business, health, and happiness. And Kamla is a critically acclaimed author, playwright, and poet. Her many books reimagine myths and stories from various traditions in the East. And she's studied Rumi for 20 years, delving into his complex, multi-volumed Mothnawai. I hope I said that right, Kamla. You'll have to correct me um, Mat- if I didn't. <laughs> uh, Matnavi. Matnavi, or some people call it, uh, pronounce it Masnavi. Matnavi. Is yes. that correct? Close. Yes. Uh, well, these are a lot of stories that we've never heard before from this uh, huge work of his. Uh, offering the wealth of the ages and timeless wisdom. And Kamla's work has received numerous awards, and she was also on the faculty of Grossmont College in San Diego for 15 years teaching composition, literature, creative writing, mythology, and and Shakespeare. And I'm really happy to welcome Kamla to the show today. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk about this work because I've always been familiar with Rumi as a poet, and he's probably best known for his beautiful love poems, and his work is just so emotional and invokes so many feelings in people that I never really thought of him as a storyteller. So I wanted to start out, I guess, first of all, I had asked you um, about the math mathnawai i know i'm going to butcher that again yeah, um, which fine. is where it's you mathnawai <laughs> yes mathnawai okay yes which is where you derived a lot of the stories that you share in the book rumi tales of the spirit so first i guess tell us for people who aren't familiar a little bit about rumi the man what what kind of man was rumi what, what should we know about him as a person well you know rumi uh you know, like the rest of us, was just going about his life. Um, he was studying and, uh, you know, jurisprudence, and um, he, you know, uh, he was 
just going about the business of daily living till he encountered Shams or Shamsuddin, who he uh, fell in love with. Uh, he was a wandering mystic. And uh, we uh, don't quite know whether this was a physical relationship or a metaphysical relationship, but it doesn't really matter because Rumi says uh, that, you know, whether love be from here or there, in the end, it leads us yonder because love in the human sphere is, uh, is the place where we learn love, uh, to, to love ourselves, to love others, to love the divine. And all of these uh, three kinds of love, which is uh, basically just one love, because there's, um, and Rumi says that too, that there's just one big heart that we all share. So he fell in love with Shams, and um, just six years after they met, um, they, Shams um, died. He, some say he was killed by, uh, you know, jealous disciples of Rumi uh, or his sons who were so upset about Rumi, um, you know, loving this man so much. And this uh, delivered, his death delivered, um, you know, the transformative wound from which Rumi became divinely inspired. And Rumi talks a great deal in his, uh, in his uh, Matnavi and in almost all the stories that I've told in both my books on Rumi um, about how necessary suffering is for our transformation because, you know, we're a little bit like fools. Uh, we, we don't um, learn our lessons till we are sort of hit on the head by a two by four and then we awaken. If we are lucky, we awaken. If we are not lucky, then we just end up being bitter. But uh, Rumi's message is that suffering, if you're open to suffering, and most of us are closed, you know, as soon as we start suffering, it's like, you know, all our defenses are up and we're like complaining and moaning and we're groaning about why are we suffering and, uh, and we close ourselves off. But Rumi and all our guides actually instruct us to be open in times of suffering. And what that means is to embrace it, is to, is to accept it. I mean, just this morning, for example, I woke up not feeling very well and uh, I'm moaning a bit about, you know, uh, I'm tired and I'm not feeling well and I have so much to do. And instead of like complaining, I just sort of said, okay, I'm tired. So what I need to do is rest. And as soon as I kind of lay back down again and started resting and embraced, you know, my unwellness, it just really opened me up. And um, so I try to like, um, you know, live with uh, these lessons from Rumi and my other guides, and I have several, actually, I have, I have many guides, because, you know, uh, Rumi himself says, uh, you know, uh, there's only, what, like, one huge guide, just like he says there's one heart, there's, you know, if you, if you even turn down one guide, then you turn them all 
all the others down. So because they're really one body. And uh, so, um, uh, and I feel that it's, it's really, these messages have to be heeded. We have to listen to them and we have to obey them. We have to live with them. I mean, it's no point just stuffing our heads with all this information and knowledge unless we're going to practice it. So um, uh, that, I took a long detour there, but, uh, you know, Rumi, um, uh, so once Shams was killed, uh, poetry started pouring out of Rumi, and uh, within a very short time, he produced like six volumes, huge tomes of, of poetry, and the stories that I have retold are embedded in this um, large uh, uh, tome, uh, and I, um, in, in a very sort of um, hidden way, and I sort of compare it to, you know, digging up a mountain to get an ounce of gold when it comes to reading Rumi's Matnavi. Uh, it's very labor-intensive to go through his books because he is very prolific, highly prolific, and he wrote at a time when people had time and so they could follow his digressions and his discourse, which sort of is very associative. You know, he, he begins to tell a story and he thinks of something else and he starts uh, talking about that. And, he'll, um, and that'll inspire him to write a poem and then that'll uh, inspire him to some other idea. And so and then he'll pick up the story like, you know, um, 10, 20, 30, 100 pages later and and start telling it and then some stories he won't really wind up and it's kind of like left to our imagination so you know being modern I wanted to complete them and I wanted to give names where there weren't any and I wanted to you know develop them uh, you know being a writer I, I believe in the power of stories and I think that st stories that um a sort of a detail um, settings and character and themes uh, are much more effective because they allow a reader to enter the story and relive the experience that the character lives and um, and at the end of the story be um, you know, get insights into his or her own character, just the way the character in the story gets insights into himself or herself. So, um, well, first of all, my, it, it, my long answer. To <laughs> no, your I was going to say, <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, it it covers a couple of things I wanted to circle back to. I mean, first of all, the the study that you did on the the Mothnui, is that right? I'm I'm going to mess it yes. up each time. Very good. Yes. It's, it'll get better, you know, as the show goes on, I'll I'll be able to say the word uh, much better. But this incredible work that he put together was after the the death of Shams, his beloved yes. teacher. And mm -hmm. this is what was really the catalyst for him to create all these stories. And they're really fables in the book. You know, there's a lesson and something for you to contemplate after you read each story. So just from your explanation, it must have been, 
you know, incredible to distill these down to the the short stories because they're not that long. Each um, one that you share, there's 12 stories in the book, but to be able to, you know, distill that from the the whole big uh, project, the big tome that you called it of, of the Bathawai, um, must have been incredible. How long did it take you to put all that together? Well, you know, once I got into writing them, I I started writing them after a, a difficult period in my own, own life when my father passed away, and my father was uh, um, very dear to me, and um, so I sort of... Uh, wanted to get into uh, into Rumi because all our guides offer so much solace and Rumi talks so much about death. But once I was into it, I, I, I couldn't pull myself away. So I don't... The first book on Rumi I wrote like in 2009 when I distilled um, 30 of the stories. And this, one, this book has 12, but... The difference is that this, uh, the stories in this book are followed by commentaries from me. And the commentaries I basically wrote, <laughs> I'd always wanted to write uh, the commentaries even when I was working on the first book, which is called Rumi's Tales from the Silk Road. Um, so when a publisher in India asked me uh, to do something new with these stories, I wrote these commentaries, and the, uh, the commentaries basically poured out of me, I would say, in about a month or uh, maybe two, you know, with editing and everything. Um, um, but uh, it, because I wanted to share with the readers how these stories can be applied to our daily lives, life. And unless we can do that, unless we can navigate um, the turbulent waters of our own life with this wisdom and these insights, then it's just another knowledge cap on our head. You know, we have to metabolize what we learn and, and manifest it in our lives so that we lead happier lives and more peaceful lives. And um, I would definitely say that all my spiritual as well as study, and I think both of them are very important. Uh, that's why we have books. Uh, books are a, a, a great resource for humankind because they preserve, I like, you know, like Rumi, 800 uh, years uh, ago, or like, you know, Socrates over 2,000 years ago, or Shakespeare, you know, or any of these um, um, uh, I myself come from the Sikh tradition. Um, I've written two books on the Sikh tradition as well, and one from the Hindu tradition, because I really do believe that our roots, the roots of all of humankind are interfused. Out of this root, the different religions flower. We are no, I agree. And those for having all these battles and wars, you know, it's stupid. Oh, I was going to gonna say, I, I agree with that. The threads that tie all of the 
major religious traditions kind of come through in a lot of these stories and you can see um, how they all do kind of lead to, you know, all roads lead to the same place, right? We, we've heard yes. that, that and they saying come from before, the same place. you know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, Rumi it's so has this little story about a beggar, uh, you know, five beggars who didn't speak each other's language. Uh, they were given, um, you know, somebody gave them, you know, some money and told them to buy something with it. And all the beggars started arguing. One, they all used different words for what they wanted to do with it. And it turns out that they were all wanted grapes, you know, but they but they had a they had a battle because they didn't understand. Is it is the Tower of Babel all over again? You know, they didn't understand that they were all asking for the same thing, and they ended up having a battle, and I think killing each other because, um, which we are doing now in our own times. Uh, you know, Christians killing Muslims and Muslims killing uh, Christians, and and so on and so forth all over the world, and. And what all of us love and and want to arrive at is 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 you know an understanding of our roots and of our destiny. As humankind, we have a great destiny uh, here with our experiences on this planet and beyond uh, what uh, Rumi calls the invisible before. We were born and after we die. This realm surrounds us and it is what we return to. And we're all seeking love of the divine and of each other. We're seeking a good experience of existence. And we're, and, and, and there are, we have, we've been given tools and strategies to get there and to adopt uh, them and to have a joyous experience of life. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very charged about this, as you can tell, but I, uh, I truly believe that, you know, we, we, most of humankind wear blinders and are very insular about their own spiritual tradition or religion when we should uh, really offer this sort of instruction to our kids in school. I was uh, I went to a school in India that had a British headmistress. It was run on the Brit- on the British lines, and she was a very enlightened woman. And every morning we would have prayers from different traditions. You know, so that's that's having a vision of life and living it. Well, I th- I agree with you in that. I think that it all of the religious traditions should be taught, and that we should all just the the answers have been laid out for us, like like you said. And if you look at all of the the ancient text, you know the things that Rumi has written, you know the the Bible, any any major text, the Quran. I mean, don't they all kind of say basically the same thing? You know, be be good to each other, love each other. 
you know, do unto yeah. others, those kind of lessons. I mean, those have all been laid out for us for for thousands of years, but we still, you're right, we have blinders on, we're not paying attention, we still keep making the same mistakes, you know, and learning the same lessons over and over and over again. Um, and just what struck me in a lot of these stories here, to kind of circle back to something you touched on in um, the beginning of the show, talking about suffering, which is a theme that certainly comes up a lot in a lot of the stories that you share. And you say in the book, suffering in all its forms is integral to the human condition. And we've been talking a little bit about that earlier. And so I wanted to ask you, do you feel that we learn more from bad experiences that we have than the good experiences that we have? Well, you know, when we have our good experiences, we don't even notice we're experiencing them. We don't think about them. We're just going about living our life, business as usual. And we don't uh, we don't start thinking about life till we are suffering. And then we wonder, you know, our first question is why? You know, why am I suffering? And if you are... Uh, you know, uh, introspective, and if you are into self-examination, then you can get a lot out of suffering. But if you're not that way, then you just end up suffering, like you said, you know, over and over and over again. It's like the scene in a in 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 a slapstick comedy where the character keeps uh, stumbling and falling on the same obstacle without. Um, without learning anything at all. So, um, you know, self-responsibility is, is a great um, uh, lesson and a great message that all our guides give us. And when we are suffering, we are much more open. I mean, what is suffering? You know, what is, uh, say, the breaking of your heart? When your heart breaks... It's, it cracks open and allows things in because generally we are so closed. Uh, we we live our lives on on tracks basically, and but when we suffer, it uh, what it does is it takes us out of our track, and it uh, it sort of propels us outward and into questioning and into um, self-examination. And if we are open to that questioning and self-examination, then we can learn huge lessons from every time we suffer. And we do suffer. and We're probably going to suffer till the end of our lives. Uh, you know, in one way, I, I'm not being nihilistic or uh, pessimistic here, but if you, for example, look, if you can have a visual graph of your life, you will see that it looks pretty much like uh, a Wall Street uh, graph, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down, and uh, till we flatline in death. And and we don't know whether, uh, how we're going to die, whether we're going to suffer, or uh, whether we're going to, you know, just pass away in our sleep and easily, but we don't know. So suffering is with us. And since we can't lose it, we have to use it. Um, uh, and we can use it in magnificent ways. 
in so many ways. And 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 the stories in Rumi Tales of the Spirit, uh, you know, spell that out. How many in how many ways can we use our suffering? That's true. And if you looked at that graph that you described, which is a great visual, if we could look at our life in that up and down of a Wall Street Wall Street graph. You know, and you would see, I bet if you looked at every time that the the line went down, that there would be a great change. But it seems that that's that's the main thing that compels us to change is suffering. You know, you they always say, oh, you have to hit rock bottom. And, you know, and the Buddhists talk about it. Life is suffering. But it, it seems that that is the only time when we can make great change in our life is when we are suffering. When we're happy, we see no reason to change. We're, feel, we're feeling yes, good. Why we're change suffering. that? <laughs> right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You're right. And, uh, you know, um, so um, suffering, yes, like I, I said earlier, is uh, is a transforming experience. And uh, we just have to be open to it. We have to stay with it. You know, generally we uh, we do so much to overcome suffering. We, you know, run around. We are too busy. We um, uh, sort of will take drugs or alcohol or uh, uh, you know try, try to find uh, to avoid it. But Rumi says very clearly. He says pains are messages. Do not turn away, O foolish one. So, you know, when we embrace suffering, what are you doing? You're basically opening your arms out and you're saying uh, to your demons, you're saying, come, you know, come, uh, let us sit down, have a cup of tea and, and let us have a dialogue about what's going on here, you know, and you will be given a gift. Our demons and, and you our say suffering in the book and that- our pain. It can bring us gifts, uh, self-reflection, self-examination. When we're in that time of suffering, those are the gifts. We're kind of forced to wake up and yes. take a look at our at our life and our circumstance and, and what's happening. And that's where real change can take place. Yes. It's so, it's so interesting yes. that it takes us to that point. We're going to go to a break, though, in just a minute. And then I want to delve into a couple of the stories and some of the lessons and some of the characters that surprised me uh, by popping up in these stories, some of the biblical characters, and um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that as well. I'm talking with Kamala Kapoor about her book, which is fascinating, Rumi, Tales of the Spirit, taking a new look at Rumi's work. If you didn't know, he was a master storyteller. He certainly is. And some of the lessons that we can learn. So if you did want to join the show, you can give us a call at 816 251 Three five five five. I am live and in person here on Unity Online Radio. And thank you so much for joining me. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. When listeners like you contribute to Unity Online Radio, 
You're making a positive difference in your life and the lives of other spiritual seekers. Go to UnityOnlineRadio.org and click on Donate to make a one-time donation or sign up for monthly contributions. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Wisdom Moment with Eric Butterworth. So we're always into this thing called time. It's very hard to free ourselves from the pressure and the limitations and the boundary lines which time sets down. So that in partial experience, in human consciousness, we have what we call deadlines, which are an abomination in human experience. But in the whole of things, we have only alive lines. We live in eternity, and time is always now. In the eternal of you, there is a completed whole, there's a finished kingdom, and all that you do and seek to do is always complete in infinite mind. And as we say, it can be done in a twinkling of a second, or it can be done in hours, it can be done in days, or we can stew and fret about it all of our lives. In God, it is now done. To hear more talks from Eric Butterworth, visit truthunity.net. Get your copy of Unity Magazine this month and deepen your spiritual journey. Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber talks about the need to make a holy shift. Carolyn Mace gets gutsy with God. Justine Willis-Toms dives into new dimensions. And Alberto Violdo shares an excerpt from his new book, Heart of the Shaman. Subscribe for one year and save $5 off the cover price and get the digital edition free. Go to unitymagazine.org and get a free trial issue today. Know Yourself as Divine, Stations of the Cosmic Christ. A new book from Matthew Fox and Bishop Mark Andrus introduce a spiritual practice designed to help you realize the divine within. Combining prayer and an interpretation of the Stations of the Cross, featuring beautiful imagery, you will be led on a process of transformation. This book will help you discover the most caring, courageous, and compassionate parts of yourself. Get your copy today at Amazon.com or Unity.org shop. Would you like to experience more peace and joy in your life through A Course in Miracles? Let Rev. Jennifer Hadley support you in discovering the powerful life lessons available through this unique spiritual thought system that teaches the way to love and peace is through forgiveness. Join Jennifer every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for A Course in Miracles, living the love, walking the talk, to experience the healing for yourself on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for coming back after the break. I'm Diane Ray here. We're celebrating the end of National Poetry Month with the perfect guest. I'm talking with Kamla Kapoor about her book, Rumi, Tales of the Spirit. Delving into the stories of Rumi, if you're familiar with Rumi as a poet, you might not be familiar with some of his stories, and they are incredible. Kamla uh, shares 12 in the book, and there's really some great lessons to be learned from these stories, and we were just exploring that in the previous segment. So if you didn't want to join us, if you had a question about Rumi, you can give us a call at 
3555. We are live on the air, on the internet, broadcasting to the world. So I'm back here with Kamla, and we were talking about the theme of suffering in these, a lot of Rumi stories here. I mean, I'm sure this must have been a subject that he dealt with a lot. Just, I mean, you have to put yourself in the time frame of when he was living, right? I mean, this was hard. Life was not easy. So there was a lot of suffering. So I'm sure that's where they yes. got a lot of their life lessons. Yes. And, you know, life is never easy. I mean, it's like we were talking about earlier, um, that it's when life gets rough that um, is that's an opportunity for us to grow as individuals and as humans. And I wanted to ask you about one of the stories in particular. There's There was a couple of other themes. There was also another story where we were talking about how different uh, religions and religious traditions, the lessons all kind of weave in into each other. There was one story that that had a goat herd that made me think of, you know, the gopis and the, the Hindu uh, where Krishna disguised himself as a goat herd and all the, the girls thought he was beautiful and he was dancing and playing the flute. And there's a story that had that imagery in it. And then another story that I wanted to ask you about was called The Gift. And in the story, we meet Joseph from the biblical story of the coat of many colors. But Joseph is presented in a very different way. And it's to me, it was so interesting. And I'm thinking, well, at that time in the 13th century, how were, were these biblical stories passed around from person to person, and then they kind of wove themselves into into stories that Rumi told? How how did that how did that happen? Well, you know, <laughs> how did Joseph oh, show up? In that you story? know the 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 Abrahamic religions are Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and. This is from the Judeo-Christian tradition. The irony is, in all of this, is that Christians, Jews, and uh, Muslims are brothers and sisters. They come out of the same root, which is called, which is the Judeo-Christian tradition. So Rumi, being the expansive individual that he is, has woven in to the Mathnavi, um, stories about Jesus, about Moses, and about um, um, Jesus and, and Muhammad. And he, this a story by, you know, Joseph, it, the Old Testament is part of the Jewish tradition. And it is out of the Jewish Christian tradition that Islam arose. So they're all very, very deeply connected. And by telling stories about all these prophets, Rumi is making the points that we are all one. And, you know, he also says at one point, he says, when you're going on a pilgrim, take a companion with you, be it a Hindu. So, uh, you know, he is very eclectic when it comes to telling his stories. He's very aware, like I said earlier, that all our prophets and our guides have the same thing to tell us. 
And that is why he tells stories about all the other prophets as well. And the, the story uh, about the shepherd that you mentioned is about Moses. And uh, that, that's a good comparison, by the way, uh, to, to Krishna and the gopis and uh, the flute. And uh, the flute actually comes, you know, when I was writing my book on from the Hindu tradition and stories about Krishna and uh, called Ganesha goes to lunch. And, you know, uh, what really um, uh, inspired me was the whole image of the flute. And when I started reading Rumi, I uh, started the first image in, in the Matnavi is the, is the image of the flute. And he goes, listen to the flute how it speaks of separations, you know. Um, and so it's like, it's, it's this separation from the divine, from our own higher natures, um, from the universe at large, which surrounds and penetrates us, um, that uh, is the voice of the flute that calls to us to turn in a, in a direction where we can fulfill our separation and unite. The, it's, uh, the, the lesson in almost all religions is unification within ourselves, with others, and with the divine. And no so separation he, he, we, between us, right? No separation between us and the divine as well. And no separation between us and the divine. No separation. And no separation in a way between ourselves and others. You know, in the, in the Hindu tradition, for example, ego is a construct of maya, which is an illusion. Now, if you look at how everybody suffers, how everybody rejoices, everybody loves. Look at human emotions. All of us feel that way. But when we are feeling that way, we think we alone feel that way. You know, it's a barrier that we've set up, um, that our ego has set up to uh, alienate us from others when, when, there, when there is no alienation, when there is only connection. And the connection and has to be years. We, uh, consciously, consciousness. Right. Yes. Uh, oh, absolutely. It just, it's just so amazing to me that 800 years ago, these things were being discussed and taught in different stories and how even the, the legends and stories of different religious traditions all kind of intertwine from way back then. It, it's so fascinating. I mean, when you were just reading, when you first started reading uh, the Mothnoi, and you saw the the comparisons and the the stories kind of blending into each other. Was that just confirmation to you that you know, wow, this this is the truth here? Well, um, I, th that that was further confirmation because you know the religion I come from, uh, Sikhism, is very eclectic, and the Sikh holy book has you know, hymns from uh, Sufi mystics, from Hindu mystics, and the Sikh gurus, um, and untouchables, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like cuts across the whole spectrum of humanity. So when I started reading Rumi and seeing how he tells 
um, stories from all. It's not they're not just stories about you know Islamic stories, but they're from Christianity and and from Judaism. Then that was further confirmation because I miss mistrust religions that tell us that we are separate from the others uh, or that we are superior to the others uh, or that we know more than the others. So um, that has been a, one of my basic mistrusts. So when I found this in Rumi, yes, it was more confirmation that I am on the right path by plowing through his volumes, and it's going to be very, very rewarding. And just digging up all this wisdom that you found from those volumes is is pretty amazing, and distilling it into these stories. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you about that jumped out at me as I read some of these is that women are portrayed in some interesting ways in a, in a couple of the stories you share in the book, The Taming of the Tiger and the Witch of Kabul. And I'm sure women at that time were not treated very well and, you know, maybe didn't have the, the best life. I mean, what did you what did you think about that from that perspective as you were reading through some well, of these? Well, uh, you know, I just want to defend, um, <clears throat> uh, for example, the Witch of Kabul, you know, who is, is a woman who's uh, aging, and still hasn't found the love of her life. So she does ridiculous things like paste portions of the Quran on her face to get rid of her wrinkles and stuff like that. It's still going on today. Women are getting cosmetic surgery. So it's, uh, you know, uh, but she learns a, a lesson at the end. And even in the taming of the tiger, the the woman is a shrew. And she, um, her shrewish shrewishness uh, enlightens her husband. But like I may make the point in my commentary that shrews are not born that way. They are made that way by a patriarchal society. But there is another story in, in, in this book uh, called The Jug of Water where Rumi redeems the female the central character in this story, Aziza, is a very, um, is a role model for us. Uh, we uh, we can, um, you know, look at the arc of her growth and learn a lot of lessons from her. Um, and if you like, I can go very briefly into that story. But you know, that was an that's an interesting uh, one that you that you mentioned and and kind of a, a good comparison between the other two. So yeah, you could um, explain that one for the listeners. In this particular story, you know, the a, a couple Aziza and Khalif have a fight because they're on two ends of the spectrum, and she, she uh, wants they're very poor, and she wants a little comfort, and he has these unrealistic spiritual principles, and he calls her a materialist. 
and he says women are just fleshy you know they just think about they're sensual and and, and they only think about things and they have a fight uh, they they go to bed and they uh, they're very upset about fighting because they've just decided they're going to divorce and it's actually actually the story is is a lesson about how you can have a better relationship um, uh, with your partner and so in, when they wake up in the morning, they, uh, to their credit, they both realize their need for each other. They express that need, and Aziza makes the first move, being a, a more confident person than her husband. She makes the first move and says, okay, I had a dream last night, uh, and the, the dream told me that you need to go to the Sultan of Baghdad, and all our problems will be solved. So... And to um, uh, to Khalif's credit, who was basically non-reflective, non-self-examining, non-introspective, uh, the fight that they had, Aziza spoke her truth and described, uh, held up a mirror to Khalif to show him what she saw in him. And to Khalif's credit, he begins his journey to introspection and realizes that his wife has spoken some truths to him. So he he goes off uh, to the, the Sultan of Baghdad, who is, you know, we don't have an image for God or the higher energy. And Rumi uses um, these metaphors and symbols for God, like the Sultan of Baghdad or, uh, or a lion. Um, and so he, um, he begins his journey to, to the Sultan of, of Baghdad. And... Uh, you know, the lessons he learns when he meets the sultan and the many, many gifts that he, ge that he gets from him that uh, not only material, but also spiritual, the gift to be on the path that fulfills Caliph and, and Aziza. And uh, at the end of the story, um, um, Rumi has a wonderful quotation where he says that man and woman are like the two wings of a bird, material and spiritual, that carries the bird to paradise. So it, it, the man... And woman, or whatever kind of partner anybody might have, partners, we will say, uh, in today's modern uh, world, where there are many different sorts of partners, um, and that um, th that is the purpose of relationships. The purpose of relationships is to help each other grow by holding up mirrors to each other. I and mean, if you're uh, familiar with, say, Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew or its modern adaptation, Kiss Me, Kate, it's all about holding up mirrors to each other so that we can see in objectively, you know, where we go wrong and, and uh, right that direction and become better human beings. So Aziza is a role model for that. So well, it's that, an interesting in arc story, in that story. Rumi. Yes, Diane, go ahead. Oh, I said that it's an interesting arc in that story. That you get to yes. see the people, cha and, you know, and, the change and, the, and also the compromise in the relationship. 
Yes, in fact, I'm writing an article about um, this story uh, about you know ten different ways uh, of um, you know, having a better relationship based on this story. So um, it's um, it's really life lessons that we we learn many lessons from Rumi. And um, I would advise anybody who's listening to turn to Rumi and to not only turn to turn to Rumi, but um, read his words carefully and put them in your ear. Like Rumi has this wonderful image. He says, you know, uh, it, you take the saint's words uh, like a golden earring and put it in your ear and then you heed it. You, you heed it. You you listen to it because uh, and you obey it because uh, these are guides are superior individuals. Like in one of the stories, not retold in this book in my but in my previous book, uh, there's a story about a little camel who's uh, about a little mouse that is so proud and. Uh, um, you know that he uh, and he's so proud and powerful. He thinks he can do anything. So he uh, come uh, comes across a sleeping camel with a rope tied to his neck, and so he takes one end, end of the rope and. Uh, pulls the camel up and says, well, I'm going to go home and all my mice relatives and friends are going to see me leading a camel and they're going to be very, very impressed. So, well, while he's doing that, he comes to a river and, you know, he has no way of crossing the river. It's a very turbulent river. And so the camel, that's another symbol or metaphor for a prophet or a guide, uh, you know, looks at the mouse and says, here, mouse, you know, oh, God. You've been guiding me with this rope. Guide us across this river. Now, the mouse is, uh, you know, is incapable of doing that. And so uh, he, you know, he tries to do it. You know, he drowns about two or three times uh, and then finally is suffers so much and is receptive to the camel's words. He says, he says, I can see much further than you, little mouse. Hop up on my hump and I will carry you across. You know, and that is what guides do to us. We hop up on their humps, like on the humps of camels, through turbulent waters, and through scorching deserts of existence, and we are carried ashore. We are carried to the other shore, where we are safe and happy, getting and giving love and enjoying this tremendous gift of life. A tremendous gift of life. We have to live so it after, well. And the only... Go ahead. I was going to say, so after, you know, completing this project and, you know, everything that you've learned from the work of Rumi, what would be next for you? I mean, is there, do you think there's still a lot more to discover in Rumi's work that you haven't that you haven't found yet? Well, you know, I've written two books on Rumi and currently, and two books from the Sikh tradition, and currently um, a publisher has asked me to do something for Rumi, Rumi for children. And uh, so I'm thinking about that because I really, you know, I've been an educator and I believe that 
our learning. I was very fortunate to have a wonderful father who started me off early. And I think that it's really important to start off early on the path so that um, because, you know, parents influence their kids, but if the parents are bigoted or close-minded and prejudiced, then the kids get on, uh, you know, inherit that, and they end up perpetuating that sort of thing. So I think that education must rem- remedy some of that. Um, and so I- I'm thinking of doing that. I'm also working on the third uh, book in the Sikh saga, and I've and I've got... Um, um, uh, I was uh, interviewed for a PBS documentary uh, on Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, and that interview inspired me to write a book that I'm working on right now called A Planetary Guru for Our Times, um, Nanak. Um, and so I'm working on that as well. Uh, I, I, my my work never ceases, and I I hope that I die in saddle because um, I'm going to be turning 71 in July, and I'm very grateful for having a passion in my life. Uh, and I believe um, a passion that um, serves me very well because I learn from from many things. I, I learned from, you know, I mean, I was walking down the street uh, once and this blonde, little, maybe 20 years old, with uh, was uh, in very short shorts, you know, walking right in front of me, jog, almost like jogging, you know, and I, and I said to myself, I said, why don't you do that? Uh, you were slowing down too much. So <laughs> I started, I started like doing a bit of a jog daily. And it really, you know, uh, perked me up. And so, you know, we can find guides if we're open anywhere in existence. So this little blonde bombshell was my guide. <laughs> Sometimes they show up in... Uh... In interesting ways, that's true. And I think the more that you're open to those kind of signs and, and lessons and, and when you meet people and you're not so closed off, you will you will find a lesson. So now you're doing a little more jogging as a result? <laughs> Well, well, you know, I can't do, I can't jog too much. I do, I want to do weight bearing stuff, but I think exercise is very important in life. And so I just sort of, um, you know, I don't, I don't jog like heavy, but I do kind of do a little bit of like fast walking, you know, so a sort of a jog, um, which, uh, which perks me up. And it's it's great, and it keeps me in shape, and uh, allows my mind to function better, and um, it's it's um, it's good. I mean, there, there's no distinction between physical and spiritual. By the way, you know, don't think that spiritual is not tied to the physical. If if you're depressed and you go for a jog, or go for a nice walk, or get out into nature, it's going to help your mind, and it's going to help your spirit and your soul. And it works the oh, other I think way so. around also. I think going back into nature, even if you're just going to a park or somewhere near your house, you know, getting outside, getting around trees, I mean, that's that always helps me. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And um, uh, uh, nature is huge. And 
and we have to stay in touch with nature that is that is uh, absolutely absolutely necessary because nature is you know our mother we've just had an earth day we it's mother gaia it's what has brought us into existence and into which we will return in one form or another whether we cremated or uh, whether we turn to ashes or whether we are buried you know and nature Nature is our solace. Nature is our mother. I was just talking to a friend and and who's had a hard time finding a relationship, but he says he goes to Mother Nature because nature never refuses him, you know. Um, and you can find nature in your backyard. You can no, find you definitely it in have your to improve. Oh yes, I mean you have to rep- improve your relationship with nature, for sure. I mean, that's so important. And we just have uh, a minute left of the show. And all these lessons uh, are stepped on the way, right? And you you talk about the way. Um, And it's easy for us to lose our path. But I think if we, you know, even looking to teachers that have been around for 800 years, we can find the right way. But you know, the, the steps on the way are the way. So there's no real distinction here between means and end. It's like Emily Dickens says, you know, instead of going to heaven at last, I'm going all along. You know, I love this. I love Emily Dickinson because she is also one of our guides. And what this means is is that every step that you take on the way is in a way destination in itself. Of course, there are many more steps to take, uh, many more steps to take daily, hourly, you know. Well, thank you for taking these steps with us today. We're just wrapping up the show here. And it's been so fun to talk with you about the work of Rumi, Kamala Kapoor. And the book is called Rumi, Tales of the Spirit. And thanks for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.